Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. Lolita is a 56-year-old orca at the Miami Aquarium. Lolita has been performing there for 52 years. So when she was a baby, four years old, she was captured and taken from the Puget Sound, which is a deep inlet of the eastern North Pacific Ocean waters. And you guys probably know this, but in their natural environments, orcas stay with their mothers for life. So she was ripped away from her mother and her family unit and then transported thousands of miles and then dumped in a tiny, shallow, barren concrete tank at this marine park, Sequarium. She's been living in this 20-foot deep tank for 52 years. Why? Well, you know why. For the purpose of entertaining us. So people who go to the sea park can have fun watching her perform unnatural tricks she was forced to do for them. And in contrast, in their natural homes, orcas swim up to 140 miles a day and dive thousands of feet below the surface of their native waters. But Lolita has spent over a half of a century being held captive and performing in a tank of water. Animal activists have been trying to set Lolita free for years. For decades, protesters have complained about the care Lolita has received. And members of the Lumi Nation, the Pacific Northwest Indigenous people, have been lobbying for years to bring Lolita home to a seaside sanctuary near waters where she was captured back in 1970 and where her family still swims today. 1970 is when she was ripped away from her environment and her family. So here's the news. It was reported last week Lolita will now be retiring. What does that mean, retiring? For now, all it means is that Miami Aquarium will no longer stage shows using her. And this is under an agreement made with the United States Department of Agriculture. Now, you should know that the Miami Aquarium is now under new management. The new owner is called the Dolphin Company. According to the company's news release, the Dolphin Company operates 27 other parks and habitats in Mexico, Argentina, the Caribbean, Italy, and Florida. According to NPR, MS Leisure, a subsidiary of the Dolphin Company, said as it announced the completion of its aquarium acquisition that Lolita and a companion white-sided dolphin, Lee, will no longer be exhibited under its new license with the United States Department of Agriculture. So what's going to happen What's going to happen to Lolita? And how about the other 70-plus marine mammals at the Miami Aquarium? And how long do we want to continue holding animals in captivity? And why would anyone ever want to patronize these sea parks? It's just so sad. And it's so infuriating what we do to these animals. Attorney Jared Goodman of PETA said, PETA is calling for this to be the first step toward releasing Lolita and Lee, that's the dolphin sharing the tank with Lolita, to a seaside sanctuary before this long-suffering orca ends up dying in the same cramped tank she's been confined to for over half a century. It's stated in a PETA press release last week, 
Lolita is reportedly suffering from pneumonia and is in danger of not receiving adequate care. The current attending veterinarian, Shelby Loss, reportedly possessed no orca experience when she was hired in 2019. She left in 2020, but was rehired last year after this aquarium fired its longtime head veterinarian after she expressed concern about the extent of animal suffering at the park. A whistleblower also shared with PETA horrific photographs of a 19-year-old dolphin, a baco, who drowned after his rostrum became entangled in a net separating two pools. Abaco was one of six animals who died at this aquarium in 2019 and 2020, three from trauma-related cases, including to the head and neck with hemorrhaging. This press release indicates that in September, PETA obtained a 17-page federal inspection report revealing many animal welfare violations at this aquarium, including critical issues with the pools and enclosures for the dolphins, the seals, and the killer whale. In addition, the inspection report revealed poor water quality, and inadequate shade for the animals. Also, dolphins have been injured and some had died because incompatible animals were often housed together. Lolita displays repetitive and abnormal behavior, which according to marine mammal experts indicates severe psychological trauma. This aquarium is under further investigation by the United States Department of Agriculture. And listen to this. Lolita and other animals were fed rotting fish. So they're only food source was rancid. Local 10 News reports a former employee, this is good, a former employee of the Miami Aquarium said they are concerned about the killer whale Lolita and predicted she may die in the next six months. The former employee said she, Lolita, just doesn't look good. She doesn't feel good. So, I mean, if we can get her stable, I think she needs to go sooner than later. So he means now that she's retired, let's get her the hell out of there and to a seaside sanctuary. This former employee also says, it makes me feel disgusted. It makes me feel ashamed to have ever been at Miami's aquarium. An inside source tells Local 10 News, that Sequarium has now placed Lolita on a 24-hour watch. So you guys know now Lolita is in critical condition. So it, is it even possible for Lolita to be safely moved thousands of miles back to her native waters or to a seaside sanctuary when she's so critically ill? The Sequarium released a Facebook Live video last week insisting that Lolita is getting better and I think they're liars. And the former employee disagrees with them that she's getting better. Again, from Local 10 News, the reporter asked the former employee, listen to this. What does that video show you of Toki? That's Lolita. He replies, just her behavior alone is telling us she's not happy. That's not her voice. That's not her vocals. She's swimming. She's sinking a little bit. She's kind of slow. She's not very attentive. That's not her. Something, something's wrong with her. And then the reporter asks, does that alarm you? And the response is, 100%, absolutely, something's wrong with that animal. A recent USDA inspection report from June revealed that Lolita's long-time attending veterinarian of 23 years was concerned when the newly hired curator made Lolita perform fast swims and big jumps despite her age and a jaw injury, and that her daily intake of food was reduced by 30 pounds a day by the new curator. 
The reporter said that she and other animals in the park were fed rotting fish for eight days without her longtime vet's approval. The former employee claims that Toki's health has been steadily deteriorating for the past year. Quote, I bet she'll die in the next six months. I don't think she'll make it that much longer. A source told the news that the doctor that is taking care of Lolita now has barely six years of veterinary experience and has never worked with orcas. So the big news here is that Lolita, the 56-year-old orca, is retired. Animal advocates, of course, were hoping or hoped that given the findings in the inspection report from the USDA, the federal government will support her relocation. But I don't know. I think they're just going to wait it out, wait it out until she dies. And even if they approve relocating her in her critically ill state, would she survive that transport? These injuries, these illnesses these deaths of marine mammals at sea parks happen all the time. You're not going to hear about it all the time, but I'm telling you, these animals are constantly suffering and frequently dying in the parks. And if taking babies from their families is not bad enough, and then transporting them, have you ever wondered or asked yourself how these marine mammals orcas, dolphins, get from the oceans into the marine parks? Most people don't want to know the process by which these animals are captured and transported. The group called Last Chance for Animals, I love this organization. Love them. On their website, on their page about marine parks, injuries that often occur in marine parks include dorsal fin collapse, also known as drooping fin syndrome, due to low water levels, Skin peeling off as a result of overchlorinated water, eye irritation caused by chlorine, copper sulfate, and other tank chemicals, stress-related injuries and deaths. Stress-related deaths are common. Some animals even commit suicide by crashing into the side of the tank repeatedly, thereby shattering their skulls. Others are given antidepressants so that the audience will not see their despair. It says here, marine parks are like prisons to marine mammals. They're like prisons. What can you do? What can you do to help? Don't visit marine parks. Don't take your family to marine parks. Don't support this cruelty. It's easy. We'll be right back. If you're like most people, you have lots of plans. A financial plan, an exercise plan, a career plan. You also need a plan for the care of your pets when you no longer can provide it. Every day, animals are sent to shelters, terrified and confused because their owners have become incapacitated or died. Unfortunately, many of them get euthanized. Some people don't give the future a thought. Others assume family members will care for their pets. A better way is to name caregivers and provide detailed instructions about your pet's feeding, social, play, and health care needs. 
needs. But even designated caregivers can't guarantee your pet will join a stable and loving home. Good intentions sometimes take a backseat to life's realities, like a new spouse who doesn't like animals, a sudden desire to travel the world, or the adoptive caregiver's own illness. A legally enforceable pet trust offers the only assurance that your assets will be used as you wish to provide for the comfort and care of your cherished animal companions. Almost every state recognizes pet trusts. Find out how to create one today and take steps to make sure your pet doesn't risk becoming yet another sad shelter statistic. Plan for your pet's lifelong well-being. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. That's AIAnimals.org. That's AIAnimals.org. Okay, here's a little update on the zoo animal situation in Ukraine. I'll give you some pet news in a moment. As you might imagine, the animals in the Kiev Zoo, they are feeling a lot of stress. They have about 4,000 animals there remaining. And animals, the larger ones, such as elephants and the giraffes, they cannot be moved in or below ground. So they are outside and really not enjoying the, the loud sounds and the impacts. It turns out the zoo is next to a key military installation, and it might be in the path of the Russian push into the capital. We'll see how that goes. The zebras are freaked out, and now they are inside. One of the elephants, a 17-year-old, he is so stressed out that a staff member has moved in with the elephant and is sleeping beside the elephant to comfort him from the loud sounds. In fact, many of the zoo employees are really going above and beyond. Around 50 of them have moved into the facility to take care of the animals around the clock, bringing with them some 30 family members. So that's really incredible. There is another zoo called the Feldman Eco Park. This is in the eastern city of Kharkiv. It actually lost some of its animals due to fighting around the area. Now, what other news is coming from the zoo? They are posting from the website, and they say they have about two weeks of food needed for uh, the zoo animals, a variety of things, and many people are bringing food to the zoo through their suppliers and special food brigades they have arranged. However, they also posted that there is a lot of fake news and that they do not need uh, the general public to drop off food or anything like that. However, you can support them, they add. If you go to their website, it will give you specific instructions on how you can wire money into, the, into their zoo account. So that seems like a nice thing to do. They're not posting that often, but uh, if you go to the Kiev Zoo website, you can uh, learn a lot about what they're doing. The situation is pretty dire for pets, both in the country and those leaving the country. IFA, International Fund for Animal Welfare, is uh, working hard, and they are supporting two animal shelters that have over 1,100 dogs in their care with food and supplies. Many refugees are leaving the country with their animals, and the neighboring countries have been very accommodating on relaxing the restrictions that usually are present when you're going cross-border with animals. Others, unfortunately, are leaving their animals to fend for themselves, which is uh, always tragic. The German branch of PETA 
is coordinating delivery of tons of food for shelters. And PETA UK put out a great post explaining the regulations for a variety of countries. For instance, take Hungary. Animals can reportedly enter Hungary even without a microchip or tattoo or proof of rabies vaccination as long as family members fill out transition papers when they arrive. The Polish government has made it possible for companion animals also to enter the country without vaccinations, microchips, or blood tests. They do ask evacuees to provide an address in Poland where they are going to leave their companion animals. Romania and Slovakia have also significantly relaxed requirements. Non-border countries, Belgium, Bulgaria, Estonia, Finland, etc., they are almost uniformly, significantly relaxing their requirements on bringing animals into the country. And there are also a variety of smaller uh, regional and local charities that are doing everything they can to provide food and other sorts of support to uh, shelters and pet owners. And everyone knows the difficulty in being able to even move around the country. So that's a very trying situation. And, Lori, a couple other uh, quick news items from around the world. Remember the uh, gentleman who received the first pig heart transplant? This was uh, David Bennett. He received his transplant January 12th, 2022 at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. He received the heart from a highly genetically modified pig. Research has been going on for decades to get to the point where this uh, would be possible. And I'm bringing this up now because he has just passed away. Early reports, and there's not a lot, are talking about immunosuppression versus infection uh, conflicts in this uh, person. His son, David Bennett Jr., said, We are grateful for every innovative moment, every crazy dream, every sleepless night that went into this historic effort. So we'll see where uh, this leads us. Have we just entered a new world where modified animals are conceived, grown, and sacrificed to make spare parts for humans? We shall see. A disturbing finding in pet food, and that is research done on 16 brands of pet food that were sold in Singapore looking at the DNA content of the pet foods well, many of them had shark DNA in them, including two species that are classified as vulnerable, the silky shark and the white tip reef shark. So sharks presumably are being captured and ending up in a pet food. And it's just uh, sort of shocking, right? The study authors said, we argue that many pet owners and lovers would be alarmed to find out that they are likely contributing to the unsustainable fishing practices that have caused massive declines in global shark populations. And that's true. It's shocking. And finally, a kind of Happy story, while well, long overdue, there is a killer whale in Orca named Lolita, also called Tokatay. This poor creature has been at the Miami Seaquarium since 1970, living alone for a long, long time. Well, this aquarium was found to have many violations, and a company called the Dolphin Company out of Mexico took over the Seaquarium with a lot of conditions from the USDA, one of them being that Lolita could not be displayed as an attraction anymore. 
So what will happen to her now? Who knows? People are calling for her to go to a sea sanctuary, if that's possible. I'm not aware of one that's ready to take her, but she's going to be in her own little tank, it looks like. Just another a chapter in her abused, lonely life. Stick around. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, and your Animals Today Minute for today is about hummingbirds. These delightful, diminutive flyers comprise more than 300 species with a range from southern Alaska to southern Chile. Thanks to their unique figure-of-eight pattern of wing flapping, hummingbirds can move in precise, quick movements, including backwards and upside-down flight. Hovering by a flower permits their long, specialized tongues to reach the flower nectar before darting off to the next meal. And depending on the sugar content of the nectar, hummingbirds may consume up to their own weight of it each day. Less preferred foods include tree sap, pollen, and insects. But a lot of energy is required to sustain their metabolic rate, which is the highest of any warm-blooded animal. Their name, of course, comes from their characteristic sound produced by the rapidly flapping wings, measured at up to 80 beats per second. The smallest hummingbird, the bee hummingbird, can weigh less than 2 grams. That's less than a penny, and most weigh less than 5 grams. It's easy and fun to attract hummingbirds to your garden with easily available feeders and sugar solution. But here's a tip. They often get stuck in open garages after being attracted to the red color of the door's emergency release cord's handle. Their natural instinct to fly upwards to safety rather than horizontally out the opening can tire these little guys out. But by painting the handle a different color than red or wrapping it with black electrical tape, the birds won't wander into the garage. And that's your Animals Today Minute for today. Welcome back. Well, it's been more than 10 years since we learned about Bad News Kennels, dogfighting operation, and of course, Michael Vick's involvement. Really a shocking revelation for everyone. So uh, would you think that nationwide dogfighting or animal fighting overall is less prevalent than it was a decade ago? Um, I'll have to admit, I really don't know the answer to that question. Uh, I get a lot of news feeds, and I know animal fighting and dogfighting is still a big problem. But there's new survey data out that speaks to this, as well as people's understanding about dogfighting prevalence. And to talk about this, I'm pleased to welcome Andrew Benovi. He is Senior Manager of Federal Legislation for the ASPCA. Welcome, Andrew. Hey, thank you. Thank you for having me. Okay, Andrew. So, is dogfighting becoming less prevalent? I'd have to say, uh, you know, that's not Unfortunately, not the case. And one thing that we have seen from the ASPCA side of it, and you mentioned the Michael Vick case, but since 2010 at least, we have assisted in over 200 dogfighting cases all around the country in 24 states. And this is something that's impacted in those cases almost 5,000 victims of, of dogfighting. And these are animals that we have rescued. We have uh, animals that we have assisted law enforcement and veterinary professionals in, in consultations and investigations. And um, even though animal fighting and dog fighting is, in particular, is a felony in, in all 50 states, it's something that we continue to see as a um, unfortunately popular underground activity, and uh, something that we at the AS ASPCA estimate that there could be tens of thousands of dog fighters in the United States right now. 
Well, I admire uh, the work of the ASPCA, as do, I'm sure, all of our listeners. You really are at the front line of this. And uh, and so it is surprising, I would say, that uh, it's still so common. Let's uh, talk about some new survey data that's available that speaks to uh, dogfighting and people's perceptions about it, if you would. Sure. So one of the things that we know that, you know, the ASPCA, we're working this every day. You know, we have our investigations teams that go out and assist law enforcement and assist in, in rescuing animals uh, from animal fighting uh, cases, something that our, our veterinarians are, are working with uh, veterinarians all across the country of knowing for the, the signs of animal fighting, what to look for if an animal comes in or if a dog comes into a veterinary practice, something we work with, with law enforcement as well for, so they can recognize uh, the particular types of, of things that we see all the time in, in working all these cases. But as for the general public, uh, what we have found that, that many people don't know how common dogfighting really is, and they're unable to recognize these signs, and, and also, uh, unfortunately, are, are not sure exactly what to do and how to, how to properly report this. And a, a new national poll that the ASCCA uh, just released shows that 57% of people believe that dogfighting doesn't even happen in their community. And unfortunately, that's just not the case. It's something that we have seen, uh, whether it's you know, in urban settings or in rural, rural settings, if it's up north, down south, out west, wherever it is all across the nation, we have seen these cases. Uh, and unfortunately, only uh, fewer than one-third of people, 31%, are, are very confident that they would recognize the signs of, of dogfighting. And um, only half of people, 53%, would know uh, would know what to do, and 53% have said that they have reported suspected activities to local authorities, uh, and 25% of people did did nothing. So we we see this gap between what the ASPCA and other animal welfare professionals and animal control officers and police officers all across the country who who see this every day, um, but the general public they just may not know. Uh, so that's one of the things that that we have been working on. In particular, uh, National Dog Fighting Awareness Day, which we uh, recognize on April 8th, to really raise awareness about the prevalence of dog fighting in this country and, and encourage folks to take action against this, this brutal form of, of animal cruelty. Can you uh, briefly review some of the signs people ought to be aware of? Sure. You know, one of the things that our, our veterinarians in particular will work with uh, veterinarians across the country to show uh, to teach them, you know, what exactly this particular bite mark or this particular pattern might be, uh, might be in, indicative of animal fighting, case, uh, animal fighting cases. So that's something that our, our, I know our, our work uh, with our veterinary staff is, is um, probably could speak a little bit better on. Um, but just in, in cases of, 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 of animal fighting, um, you know, it's not something that you, you might not see out, out in the open. Uh, but it's it's something that you know behind a fence or something where you see a a bunch of dogs tied together all on chains uh, of particularly uh, a particular length apart so they're not uh, quite touching each other yeah. things like that um, is something that if you suspect something is going on contact your local police department contact your local law enforcement or animal control officers and let them know and let professionals uh, go in and make that determination for themselves. Is there a profile of people who are involved in dog fighting? Who does this these days? Uh, un- unfortunately, there's not. It's something that we've seen uh, in all kinds of demographics, whether it's, you know, wealthy people, whether it's not wealthy people, whether it's 
like I said, urban or rural, like in the country or out in the city, you know, we've we've assisted animal fighting cases and 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 in out in the country, and we've assisted them right in our backyard in New York City. Uh, it's something that it's hard to pin on on one particular uh, uh, profile. It's uh, unfortunately uh, something that uh, occurs all across the all across the country. Okay, so there is. A federal legislation being drafted or proposed, the Heart Act. What is that? Sure. So the Heart Act is the help extract animals from red tape, and what this bill gets at is two particular issues that we have seen firsthand when we are assisting uh, in animal fighting raids. The ASPCA, along with other uh, other uh, other animal welfare organizations, regularly assist law enforcement when it comes to animal fighting cases. When it comes to the federal system, you know, the, the FBI doesn't have an animal shelter. <laughs> you know, they, they um, rely on organizations like ours to assist in these cases. So if they're going in and they're, they're going into an animal fighting raid, uh, we come in and we help uh, take care of the animals. We help gather uh, evidence, and then we hold the animals as they go through the next step. And when it came, and one of the things like we mentioned before is talking about the lack of, of awareness to these cases. One of the things that we want to get out is that um, when we rescue animals from the yard or when law enforcement rescues animals from, from a yard from an animal fighting case, there's still other steps that, that needs to go happen. It needs to, uh, and for some cases, especially on the federal level, it is a long road ahead of them for some animals. Yeah. And what the Heart Act does in particular is it gets to a problem that we have seen where once we rescue these animals, uh, it just takes too long for them to be rehomed and rehabilitated. And there, there's another problem along that goes along with it. The longer that the animals take, uh, it takes to get these animals rehomed, um, the more expensive it can be. So these two problems of, one, this process is taking too long, the disposition for the animals uh, through essentially what, what is the federal asset forfeiture system, is taking too long, and it is also uh, becoming too expensive the longer it takes. And that expense part is, is problematic uh, because if this is uh, difficult for shelters and rescues to assist in animal fighting raids, that's something that we, we don't want to, to have. So in order to address these two problems, what the HART Act does is it uh, makes this process, this disposition process, shorter and ensures that those responsible are reimbursing the governments for the, for the cost of the care. And please clarify something. The, so the FBI is involved in some of these cases, so it becomes a federal case when they're involved? I mean, you've got each of the 50 states, it's a felony for, to be do- involved in dogfighting, but yet there's another layer of federal law enforcement. Sure. So that's, that's, a, that's actually a really good, really good question. Um, essentially, when animal fighting crosses state lines, that is when uh, the federal law enforcement gets involved. Um, state, state, you know, animal fighting can occur in the state, and if unless it's crossing state lines or if other federal cases are involved, for example, drug trafficking, uh, trafficking illegal weapons, and that's one thing that we know for sure is that when animal fighting occurs, chances are other uh, crimes are occurring as well. So if those other crimes trigger a federal investigation, that's that's usually when the FBI or other federal law enforcement is, is oh, called. Okay, got so it. we have seen on the state level, and that's uh, getting back to this this those issues on the state level. States have figured out that when you're seizing animals in these types of crimes, 
you need to have this process be quicker than when you're seizing a boat or seizing a, a car. Um, you can't just have animals waiting around while this, this asset forfeiture process goes forward. But on the federal level, there's, there's no difference. So the HARD Act makes that change in saying, when you're seizing animals, we need to make this, we need to make this quicker, and we also need to ensure that the cost of care for the animals is being met. Okay, and listeners who want to support this can go to the website and send a letter to Jeff Sessions or somebody else? Uh, you know, even better, you can go to uh, the ASPCA site. You can go to ASPCA slash advocacy, and there you can contact your members of Congress. Uh, we just had the bill, the companion measure, introduced in the Senate uh, this week by Senators Harris and Collins, which joins the, the House legislation as well. Um, and ask their member of Congress to co-sponsor this, the HARD Act. That's great. Andrew, in the last minute or so, uh, sure. if you could just tell us about what the Break the Chain campaign is and uh, tell us about my favorite actor, Sir Patrick Stewart's involvement in that. <laughs> sure. So Sir Patrick Stewart actually stopped by uh, one of our, uh, one of our uh, facilities and showed off exactly what, uh, what dogs should be doing. And dogs shouldn't be on a chain. They shouldn't be in animal fighting uh, or in dog fighting pits. Um, and making sure that, uh, that that chain of cruelty is broken. And, and you can go follow uh, all of the information that we are, we are doing as part of our campaign, our campaign for National Dog Finding Awareness Day at ASPCA.org slash break the chain. And you can, can see uh, Sir Patrick Stewart up there and, and see all the other work that's being done by advocates all across the nation. And we re- really appreciate his support in particular. That's Andrew Vinovi, Senior Manager of Federal Legislation for the ASPCA. Great information. Thank you so much for visiting us on Animals Today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. More with Animals Today after the break. Each year, hundreds of racehorses get injured while racing or training. If a horse gets injured or breaks down, it's more likely than not that he or she will end up being shipped off to slaughter. Many people refer to horse racing as a sport, but really it's only betting with animals. And as the horses get less competitive, they're worth more to the owners dead than alive. They are sold off and shipped in overcrowded trucks for hours on end without water to Canada or Mexico where they are slaughtered for food. That is the fate of most racehorses in the United States. While they are alive, they are subjected to overtraining and massive amounts of drugs to mask the pain of chronic and recurrent injuries. The racing industry is cruel from top to bottom, so don't support it and tell your friends and relatives not to support the industry in any way. Don't bet, don't go to tracks, and avoid parties that celebrate racing. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Check them out at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. Welcome back to Animals Today. Peter. Lori. How many rabbits do you know? Rabbits. How many rabbits? I don't know any rabbits. Most famous rabbits quiz. Okay. <laughs> Ready? Ready. Ready. I was... Let's start out with someone everyone ought to know. Yeah. This bunny's probably one of the most famous rabbits of all time. Yep. Who's that? Bugs. Yes, Bugs Bunny. And the most well-known catchphrase associated with Bugs? What's up, dog? That's right. Okay. Bugs Bunny is an American icon. Bugs was created in the late 
30s by Leon Schlesinger's Productions. Of course, Bugs is best known for starring roles in the Looney Tunes produced by Warner Brothers. Peter, who voiced Bugs Bunny? Mel Blanc. That's right. Hey. Mel Blanc is known as? The uh, man of a million voices, something like that. (laughs) The man of a thousand voices. (laughs) He developed and performed nearly 400 distinct character voices, including creating voices for an estimated 90% of Warner characters, including Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, Porky Pig, Tweety Pie, Sylvester, and the Roadrunner. Yeah, amazing. Okay. Next bunny. Who is the pink rabbit powered by batteries? Oh, that's the uh, Energizer bunny. Would you believe it (laughs) if I told you? Would you believe if I told you that there are two answers here? Okay. The Energizer bunny and the Duracell bunny. And depending on where you live, you might give one answer over the other. that's funny. Yeah. yeah. If you live in the United States or Canada, then you probably know that pink bunny as the Energizer bunny. If you live in any other part of the world, then you might know that pink bunny as the Duracell bunny. That's so good. Okay, but there's a very long story that goes along with this. Oh, really? Yes. So let me give you the abbreviated version of it, okay? okay? Yeah. In 1973, Duracell launches the Duracell bunny television campaign. And In this television ad, it shows a bunch of pink bunnies playing drums, and bunnies start to drop off one by one until the one bunny that's left beating his drum is the one that's powered by Duracell batteries. Right. And this is how the Duracell bunny was born. But the end of the 1980s, Duracell failed to renew the protection of the trademark's property rights. So in 1988, Energizer launched their advertising campaign, and guess who was the star? Another bunny. The pink bunny. (laughs) That's terrible. But in their ads, the pink bunny looked a little similar to the pink bunny in the Duracell commercial. So consumers were confusing the bunny with the original one. So ironically, Duracell sales continued to grow, and Energizer sales started to drop. Oh, wow. So interesting. So Energizer decided to add sunglasses and flip-flops to their pink bunny to distinguish it from the original bunny. And they also started to mock Duracell in their ads as well. Then, finally, Energizer sales started to increase. Okay, so Energizer registered their pink bunny in the United States. And then Duracell wanted to regain their campaign ads using their bunny and tried to register its pink bunny in the United States. And there were all sorts of legal disputes until both companies reached an agreement, that was in 1992, whereby Energizer can only use their mascot in the U.S. and in Canada, and Duracell everywhere else. And even then, Peter, the legal battles were not over. There was a lawsuit filed by Energizer for breach of contract and trademark infringement and so on. And anyway, that's as much as I know about the legal aspects surrounding the pink bunny. So bottom line, here in the U.S., We know about the Energizer Bunny, but outside of North America, it's the Duracell Pink Bunny. But had Duracell not let their trademark lapse in 1988, there might not have ever been an Energizer Bunny that goes on and on and on. Fascinating story. (laughs) I wonder who lost their job over that one. (laughs) Okay. Next famous rabbit. Okay. Who is the fictional rabbit character from Disney's animated films Bambi? Okay, uh, 
it was um, something like Hopper, Trigger. Um, oh, close. Um, Thumper. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Why was he called Thumper? Don't know. He had a habit of thumping his left hind foot. Okay. Can you picture him? Like, yeah. thump, thump, thump. Okay. Do you remember what Thumper would say to his mother when his mother asked him, what did your father tell you? No, I don't, Lori. His answer would be, if you don't have something nice to say, don't say nothing at all. That's called Thumper's Law. Okay. You need to know that. That's good. And look where we've come. If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all to the internet and social media where you could say any hurtful thing to anyone at any time, right? Okay, this is a good one. Another one the younger generation won't know. What cereal, Peter, did your mother try to poison you with when you were a kid with lots of sugar, all sorts of artificial flavoring, and red orange and yellow artificial coloring. Yeah. And there was a white rabbit on the box of the cereal. And the cereal was first created by General Mills. That was tricks. That's right. Tricks with the X. Very good. I, I, my mom poisoned me almost every morning of the week. I know. With, it was that or something else. So tricks cereal was first introduced in 1954 wow. and was the first fruit flavored cereal on the market. The original round corn puffs came in three colors, raspberry red, orange, orange, and lemony yellow. Do you remember that? Well, it's so funny that you put a certain fruit along with those colors. It's like <laughs> nothing to do with it. But that's what the character I know, said. I, I know, I know. Raspberry red, orange. <laughs> and what would the cartoon rabbit who came alive from the cereal box try to do? Oh, tell me. He would try to eat the cereal, take the cereal from the kids and eat the cereal. <laughs> and then... What would the kids say to the rabbit? Silly rabbit, tricks are for kids. That's right. That's right. (laughs) That's terrible, Lori. What bunny clucks like a chicken and returns every Easter to sell Cadbury cream eggs? Oh. The Cadbury bunny. Yeah, okay. Okay. Okay, one more. Who's the bunny in Alice in Wonderland? Oh, something rabbit. Yeah. Um, tell me. White Rabbit. The White Rabbit. Oh, yeah. White Do you remember how Alice ends up trapped in Wonderland? Through the looking glass? Well, she follows the <laughs> rabbit. <laughs> she follows the rabbit down the rabbit hole. Okay. Okay. Other famous rabbits, Peter Rabbit and Peter Cottontail, Roger Rabbit, Skippy the Robin Hood Rabbit, Lola Bunny. Do you know who that is? You'll like, you'll like her, Peter. Look her up. Lola Bunny. Okay. Okay. We have one more minute, so I'll ask you this. How many famous songs can you name with Rabbit in the title? Oh my goodness. Uh, White Rabbit, that was a hint you gave me, right? Yes. From Jefferson Airplane. Yep. Um, You should know one other. One other. From one of my favorite performers of all time. Jack Rabbit? Yes! Yeah. By Elton John. Good. You got it. Okay. These others, I, I have no idea. I've never heard of Rabbit Fighter. By T-Rex, Pink Rabbit by The National, Mr. Rabbit by Casper Baby Pants. I have no <laughs> idea who these people are. Are You the Rabbit by Marilyn Manson, Run Little Rabbit by Cab Calloway and his orchestra, Rabbit Will Run by Iron and Wine, and Fat Rabbit by Ludacris. Oh, of course, Ludacris. Okay. <laughs> Okay, that was fun. I'm so glad I know all about my rabbit natural history now. Thank you, Lori. (laughs) 
Thank you for joining us on Animals Today. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other being sharing our planet, the animals. <laughs>